Welcome to the Assembly at Heckfield Place podcast. I'm Lucy Hislop, curator of this eclectic programme of year-round events. A gentle Georgian home in Hampshire with 430 acres of woodland, lakes and gardens, Heckfield has always been a place to bring interesting and interested people together. Continuing this legacy, the Assembly calls on curious minds with a focus on looking forward and on our relationship with nature. Each episode features an edited conversation with our guests. During our Food Waste Week, we listen to a panel of sustainability experts, Sky Gingell, our culinary director and London's spring restaurant chef, Sean Sutherland, co-founder of A Plastic Planet, and Zenier Honlo, a founding partner director with a considerate group. They honed in on the issues, why they are problematic, and a practical way we can kick our food waste and other habits. Good evening, thank you very much for joining us. Um, and thank you both for being here as well. I mean, it's such a joy for me to be able to sit on the stage with both of you. Um, so um, please excuse me, I'm going to read this off because their credentials really are incredible and I don't want to get it wrong. So we've got Sean. Sean um, has been igniting social change, creating bands, campaigns in communication and businesses is your passion. Um, you founded a Plastic Planet in 2017. Um, which is a non-profit um, impact company with a single goal, basically to turn the plastic tap off, um, if I get it right. The first campaign asked supermarkets worldwide to give customers the choice to buy plastic-free, which is a joy, um, and guilt-free. So there was the first plastic-free aisle. Um, and then this campaign really became the number one initiative in the UK and offering a really good solution for this plastic crisis that everybody was talking about and wanted to do something. Um, so there's been a lot of media attention. You've been talking around the place, um, talking it up, and, and people don't get past you anymore. Now, that's a really good thing. <laughs> Retailers, educators, legislators, governments. So you've got them all going, and you've got them all talking, and that's fabulous. Um, then we have Sky. Um, Sky was, comes from Australia originally. Um, she was Square Meals Female Chef of the Year um, and is one of Britain's most respected chefs. I don't know if you've, any of you have been to Spring at Somerset House. If you haven't, it's amazing. Um, and the food here obviously is um, under her um, control as well. And she, you started at the French House before you were then the head chef at Peterson Nursery, which is also one of my favourite places in this country, I have to say, uh, where you received a Michelin star. Um, and then you set up Spring in 2014. And now here as a culinary director, you not just run the kitchen, but also the gardens. And I don't know if you any of you have been, but it's just heartwarming to see all the things that you grow, the way you sort of get everybody involved and, and really talking, taking that produce from, it, from its roots. So let's start chatting. Um, question I had for both of you really is, here we are, we're all working in this sector to try and make a change, to try and really get all the issues around climate change, waste, sustainability integrated into our daily lives. Did you both have a wake-up moment or is it something that sort of just came gradually? Sky? Me? Yes. Um, I think, I think it, it has, um, I think it was, it's, it's like definitely been a gradual thing and it was sort of something that I didn't really set out to uh, become involved and I sort of, I think it really, really started with uh, working at Petersham Nurseries and when we opened in 2004 and opening with a vegetable garden. And I think that was really, although I cooked for a really long time and I, uh, it was the first time I really felt uh, planted with my feet in the earth. We had this tiny little vegetable garden and only little bits and pieces came from it, but it really was the first time that made it sounds very strange now. It was in 2004 and people weren't really cooking seasonally at all at the time, mm. you know. And I think uh, you would have been very hard pushed for anyone to really tell you what the seasons were anymore because strawberries were available. Well, they still are at yeah. Christmas and, you know, asparagus, you know. Um, and so that became this kind of very natural, uh, it just seems so natural, the idea of cooking away out of the seasons. And then I, I also, growing something so close to home, I really realized how good it tasted and how uh, rich in nutrients and things it was. And then when I 
left Petersham, I um, I did a, I went, I spent a bit of time in California with a lot of, went around and visited a lot of kind of restaurants that had farm to table um, relationships and organic farms. And I realized that when I opened Spring, that I was in the middle of the West End, that there were, I had no, I couldn't see, touch, feel nature. And so I sought to find a, um, a farm that I could have a, a unique relationship with. And that happened to be a biodynamic farm, although it was Jane Scotter from Fern Vero, which I, I didn't seek. I was looking for organic, but I wasn't looking for, I didn't know very much about biodynamics. And um, with sort of our relationship has really gone from strength to strength. And from that, uh, organics went on to food waste. And then Sean and I had a very fortuitous meeting probably in the end of 2017. Mm. And um, I learned a lot. Um, about the kind of issue of single-use plastics from Sean and actually Sean was the one who we, we're single-use plastic free at, uh, at spring and um, Sean was the person and a plastic planet were the people who guided us through that process and then here um, I kind of there was always going to be a farm there was 460 acres but I sort of persuaded the owner if Jane could come on board and we could turn it into a biodynamic farm and that started with the fruit and veg and then um, that's extending throughout the whole estate. And um, you were very, very kind to say that I led the whole thing, but I really don't. I'm a part of a team of a lot of people who've, um, you know, have got strong beliefs and, and uh, are very, very committed to the project. Well, Chan, that leads on really nicely to you having sort of inspired Sky yes. to go plastic free, but what inspired you then? Uh, well, I had a much more of a road to Damascus, I think, because I am probably the least likely eco-warrior most of the people here would ever meet. You know, I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur. I've been involved in a number of different businesses. So I am the furthest thing from a plastic saint. And the mo most latterly, the business that I co-founded and ran was a skincare business. And we all know how plastic heavy that industry is. So I cannot tell you how many millions of unrecyclable plastic bottles I have personally pumped out into the environment. Didn't even think about it. Six years ago, four years ago, even, it wasn't, it wasn't on my list in any way, which sounds terrible to say that now, but four years is a long time in plastic. And then as I was exiting that business, we were selling that business, um, I, I got involved in the launch of the film A Plastic Ocean. Right. And I was uh, advisor to the Hong Kong board um, on really how to get this film that nobody wanted to see because, you know, this was uh, early 2016. Who wants to go and see a film about plastic in the ocean? What a downer. Yeah. So it was really difficult to even get people to come in and see screenings of that film. So I was involved in the launch of that. And obviously through that process, I met a lot of the scientists, a lot of the environmentalists, a lot of the marine biologists involved in the making of the film. So that was a really rapid wake up for me of not just what we have done to the oceans, but really now I know what I know, what we have done to the soil, what we've done to the air, what we've done to every glass of water that we drink and what we continue to do every single day. Mm. So when I left the skincare business um, and then really went through this whole process of reinvention, which has been a pattern through my whole life of reinvention, I kept coming back to the plastic thing and thinking, I don't know how I can not get involved in this. And is there a way that I can perhaps use my marketing experience, my entrepreneurial experience to see if we can create a different kind of organization that can perhaps help industry change? That cannot be, you know, there are many ocean focused NGOs and charities and the world really doesn't need another one of those. Yeah. But perhaps it needs an organization that really understands business, which is uh, perhaps something that I can bring to it. So we set a plastic planet up, as you say, with that single goal of just wanting to ignite and inspire the world to turn off the plastic tap, to never be able to hide behind the words like recyclable and recycling and any of those things that we now know are absolute BS. Mm. There are no recycling fairies. And what we need to do is just make less of it in the first place. And so the last three years have just been this extraordinary journey for me. And in many ways, I feel like you know, the people that I work with now people like Sky, people like our creative agency, our comms agency, it's almost like I have saved the best till last. 
And, and even though it seems like a very strange shift from everything else I've done to suddenly be running this um, pro-activist organization, uh, it, it makes absolute sense for the moment right now. And I feel like this is the thing that I've been built for. Mm. And I, I feel so grateful when I wake up every day that you know, I'm, I'm now in a position where I don't have to, I'm not selling stuff anymore, I'm selling change. So how can I sell change in a way to the people that actually have the power. And that, that for me is, I almost think of it as a, as a burger, probably a vegan biodynamic burger now. <laughs> but you know, the top of the bun is the government. And governments globally, we know they're the ones that should be stepping up. They, they, we need legislation, we need policy change, we need taxation. Very slow, very unwieldy, very distracted for the whole of last year in the UK. Um, and that will happen but right now massively influenced by the lobbyists of the fossil fuel industry. Yeah. Yeah. The bottom of that bun, you've got the public, the shopper, absolutely disempowered. People buy what they are sold. We simply need to change the systems and sell them different things. And then they have the freedom of that choice to make the right choice in the first place. And the juicy bit of the burger in the middle is the bit that interests me, and that's industry. Because as an entrepreneur, I believe industry business can change the world. And we simply need to enable that to happen. So our organization exists to help with solutions, to help ignite industry from within rather than tacking it from outside, to put pressure on governments, but really to make that middle bit, um, make, to accelerate the pace of change at every single level. Great. <laughs> we need, Sorry. We need no, but this leads me on to the next section, which is motivation and, and how do we keep up the motivation. Um, I mean, Lucia and I, we went to school together. We went to our first climate talk in 1989, was it? Jonathan Porritt did a climate talk and we were at school. We were doing a subject called environmental systems, which was very unusual, but we did a great program the IB offered then. And already then we were taught what was going on. Mm -hmm. And then we went off and did our studies and we were, and you sort of thought, I certainly thought, well, the industry has got, you know, this is, this is out there, this is public knowledge, so somebody's got to be doing something about it. So I didn't it worries me, but I thought I know this, so everybody else must know this. So, you know, something must be happening. Mm. I mean, we in Germany started recycling in the 90s, and I thought, oh, that's fine then, you know, recycling. Now we know where it went. Mm -hmm. But so I lost the motivation to be actively involved until you suddenly grow up and you realize that nobody has done anything about it. And the industry, as you just mentioned, has just, just went off lobbied by all these other parties. So how do we keep up our you know, motivation to keep going in view of a lot of these other forces, people who don't seem to care or who don't, or do you think that tide has now turned and everybody is motivated? I mean, how do you, how do you, you know, for, for people here sitting in the audience, how does one keep motivated to keep doing little changes? Because yeah. we know that is all the, also the sum of those little things that will. I'm, I feel extremely optimistic, yeah. if I'm honest, because so, I mean, you're right, you know, back, back in the 80s, everybody knew what was happening. Everybody knew that climate change was, was being systematically proven by the scientists. But we chose to ignore it. And we chose to not just ignore it, we chose to double down on fossil fuel extraction and, and this massive ramp up in hyperconsumption, which really is the cause of, of the climate crisis in every way. Uh, but now I feel like there is, there is this new dawn. And it's at so many different levels. And when you have people like Mark Carney, you know, leaving the position that he's got, you know, head of some you know, historical financial institution, and then becoming somebody who's going to advise on climate yeah. at the UN level and at the UK government level, that gives me huge optimism. And I think industry, from, from the connections, the conversations that I have, they are definitely waking up to the fact that they know that if they do not change, they will be tomorrow's dinosaurs. And so this definitely, we didn't have that kind of tipping point in the 80s. That coupled with the fact that every mass media publication, you cannot pick anything up without reading about climate change now. It's not just The Guardian, it's not just Resurgence and The Ecologist, it's everywhere. Mm. You know, The Telegraph, their biggest launch this, this decade, they believe, is gonna be their climate channel, uh, channel that they launch in March this year. So you can see that there's going to be nothing but an increased focus on it. And when there is change, there is also tremendous opportunity. So you can also see these green shoots of, of industry realizing there is going to be, a, there is a lot of money to be made. Opportunity. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, and and if they if they can make the move in the right way, and for the big businesses, it's going to be very difficult. And there will be these challenger brands and industries that come up that will grab those opportunities and probably benefit first. But I, I and that and the fact that all of our children talk about climate in a way that we never did when yeah. we grew up. So there is there's this mass awareness now that I think we should be very optimistic about. All we need to do now is make sure that we we change the rhetoric from rhetoric, mere words, to actions. Yeah, and that's where I think Sky is quite interesting because you work, obviously, as a chef, you have your teams, and I see that a lot in the hotels, is that the change comes down to a lot of small actions, mm. and you have to often take people's hands to make those changes because everybody's so busy with their daily lives and you're used to your routines, and so... How and when do we make those changes? And how did you motivate your team to sort of come on, on this journey that you've started? Well, I think um, I think in terms of the food, like the food, I think it's really easy because you can um, you can see it, you can touch it, you can feel it, you can kind of fall in love with it. And I think in terms of um, my attitude to kind of uh, the soil and to uh, um, Look, it's so interesting, and I, I don't, I mean, I, I just bang on about things all the time. Like, I, I, but it's, it's interesting when you were talking, when you talk about the vegan burger, and I was like, oh, um, because, uh, y you know, the thing is, the big question, uh, I was talking about it with Lucy today, actually, the big question is, is uh, I feel that the world is, has a collective eating disorder. I really, really do. I think it's so confusing, all the messages out there. I think we have really emotional attachments to the way we eat now, which I don't think people did even 50 years. I think people were grateful for the food that was put in front of them a lot more. And, um, you know, I, I, was, I was just in Australia, which was a whole other thing, actually, in terms of the environment. And I just came back last week. But uh, everywhere I went, people had watched some program on Netflix about some vegan superpower you can turn yourself into. I don't know. I'm sure someone knows a green something or other. And then I was with someone else who was following a diet which was lesser than this only by a doctor. And, um, you know, and like the thing is, the one thing that nobody asks is the only thing you have to ask is where does my food come from? Yeah. That's the only question you need to ask. You know, the whole vegan uh, thing is just a very, very complicated thing. You know, um, it is where does our food come from, you know, because you can be as, you can eat only a plant-based diet, but where what has gone on those plants? Mm. What is the soil like? Where has it come from? How far has it flown in from, you know? Mm. And um, I feel really, really passionate about uh, good, clean, healthy soil, mm. nutrient-dense, rich soil. Um, and uh, so I, I probably talk about it about 90% of the time, like, which is really, you know, especially at work. Because every time I see something, I go, oh, my God, that's so beautiful. I just completely um, am constantly, like, mesmerized by the beauty of, um, like, you know, good produce. And, um, and in terms of the plastic thing, uh, you know, I think you guided me. I think the best thing you ever did was said, get the team on board. And I realized that, I can sort of bang on and be quite monotonous. And I thought, I've got to get everybody thinking the same as me, because otherwise change isn't going to happen if it's just coming from me. You know, it's, oh, it's another Sky, you know, kind of weird initiative. Or And we watched 21 minutes of a plastic, uh, plastic Ocean, didn't we? And Sean came in and talked to us, and we all brainstormed together. And then we allocated ambassadors. And so everybody, we all jumped on... The, um, the thing together, and that was the most successful thing I think that we did. I mean, I don't know. If I've but that no, and that's really interesting because that what you just said the the thing about the the beauty of the produce mm. um, and and the soil, and and thankfully that's being addressed actually by this government now. The whole issue around soil security and all of that, but the beauty of the produce, and I think you reflect that really well. And I don't know if any of you looked at Sky's Instagram account. If you haven't, you should. Because you convey the beauty of the produce very well in your Instagram account. And that brings me on to the next point of, of communication. And climate communication is a real issue. Um, because one thing is talking about the headlines, but actually talking about how we make those changes and inspire yeah. people it's, to it's really... It's overwhelming. It's yeah. overwhelming. So, But I think you know, you've really hit something. On, you've hit a spot there. 
and you're an expert in, 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 um, in communication anyway, how can we make it even more, I think my, my issue is my, my sort of hashtag is 50 shades of green, because I think we need to make it more sexy, we need to make it more fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way people buy in, they've proven through studies that the brain will absorb something when there's humor involved. So if we just keep going on about do mm. doomsday, and, and mm -hmm. equally like you, I'm an optimist. So what's your thing about how do we make it more fun? How do yeah, we make I think, it well, more I think appealing? And to, to start with, you know, it, it's everything starts with design. Mm -hmm. And uh, and design, quite often we, we denigrate the designer to, to just, they make things pretty, but actually everything, that the chair I sit on, the building we're in, everything begins with design. And I think that we are, we're in the age where the power of the creative is going to be really incredible. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and if we can inspire the creative industry to want to, invent us, create a new aesthetic, so that we look at things with different eyes. And just in, say, the packaging industry, it's so extraordinary to me how quickly packaging has gone from being, you know, when things are overpackaged and you want the unboxing experience and all of those things. And you think, how quickly has it gone from packaging equals luxury to packaging equals waste? Yeah. Mm. And, and that has happened within months, really. Mm -hmm. um, and the more that we can do to encourage this new aesthetic, uh, the, the thing I have always been fascinated about with plastic is it is the gate where everything is connected. What Sky is doing and our connection with our food and the soil and, and how we treat the planet. And it, all of it is connected. And plastic is somehow this very easy gateway into the climate crisis because, of course, it's all connected. Plastic is a solid fossil fuel. Yeah. So people that, that think they're, they're two different issues, it's, it's exactly the same issue. But the thing about plastic is that it's, it's visible, it's tangible, we see it everywhere, we see the devastation, we can blame nobody else. Yeah. Um, and it's fixable, and it's so recent, it's in my lifetime that we have made this mess happen. Mm. And if we fix plastic, I know that we will fix many other things, because it's the gateway to making us think a little bit deeper about how we take and make and waste. How can we take and make and never waste? How can we just never have this thing, this bin, that has to be collected every single day now? And I think so that, that's been the interesting thing of, of the, it's, the plastic issue is powerful because it leads to everything else. Mm. Just as I think the food issue is, is very powerful because if you care about food, then you should care about soil. And if you care about soil, you have to care about yeah, so much else. Yeah. I mean, I'm the same. We always talk about... Uh, like we're going to have a revolution that it has to be a delicious one yes you know yeah. it has to taste good it yeah. has to look beautiful um you have to want to it has to feel desirable um i think that's really important yeah, yeah. we don't want green to be about denial and no. too much hemp and knitted armpit hairy sandal <laughs> No. You know, I look at no, it now. That's what we. Some of it doesn't harm the planet. Yeah. This is the yeah. ultimate yeah. in luxury now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah totally. And I think what you're saying about the beauty is, I think if something is beautiful, you don't want to waste it. No. Yeah. I mean, if I have beautiful food, you don't want to throw it away. Mm. So automatically, that would probably also address the issue around food waste. No. I mean, what's your sort of when somebody talks to you about food waste? I mean, one thing is doing it at a hotel and a restaurant, but on a domestic level, what do you sort of is there like a one golden rule that people should sort of um, do in their kitchens when it comes to? Well, I think there's lots of things. That, I mean, and I'm sure everybody knows the statistics that a third of all food grown on the planet never reaches a shop shelf. Yeah. So, um, and yet we, we will have issues of food security, won't we, if, if the environment heats any further than it does. It's so complicated, but um, I, I think... Um, what do, uh, well, we, we do, it, we've done it, actually, it's been really successful at work, and I think uh, we're probably down to about somewhere between 3 and 4% food waste now, and we do that uh, through lots of different things, but, but, um, but really through the scratch, uh, we do something called scratch at between 5.30 and 6.30 every night, which Sean's been doing a lot. I can't understand why other people haven't copied that idea. It's such a fantastic idea. Between uh, 5.30 and 6.30, every night at the spring, you can come and eat for £20, three-course uh, meal, oh. no dietaries, uh, so it's potluck, yeah. because if we did dietaries, it would just, it would screw it up. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and we, I don't write it, the younger chefs 
write it. We have a scratch shelf in the fridge, and it's a bit like Ready Steady Cook. We put all our peelings there. Uh, you were talking about potato skins before. We put, we make pickles and ferments as we go along. We remill our bread back into flour, and you can come and have a three-course potluck meal for twenty wow. pounds. And, um, which is really nice because it makes spring accessible to people that sometimes the price might feel. Um, and that's been really successful. And then at home, uh, what do I do? I, I have a very well-stocked pantry. So I have lots of kind of pulses and grains, really good olive oil, great vinegar, probably a little tin of anchovies, you know, um, garlic, dried chili. And then I, I do genuinely... Um, uh, I don't have a big, I haven't got the kids at home anymore, so I, like, I'm not cooking as much. As, but I, I literally shop as I need to, and they laugh at me at work, but sometimes I just buy one ripe tomato, and I take some rye bread, and I just eat really simply. I make big stews on Sunday, or big soups with, you know, farro or spelt or, you know, vegetables, and I keep that going for a few days. And I just eat, um, and I won't, I, I don't shop in supermarkets. I'm not anti them, but I... I feel the temptation, you know, the two for one and all of those mm -hmm. things becomes, you know, like, um, and I don't buy, I, I won't buy from anything. I, um, I won't buy from further afield than Europe, really. Mm -hmm. So I, I wouldn't buy blueberries or avocados from Chile. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, and I think that's, that's one of the problems, isn't it? You know, and I, I know I, I probably sounded a bit kind of like about kind of these kind of foods, um, these kind of health fads or like vegan or, uh, you know, fast for 16 hours, you know, eat little and not. I mean, it's just so confusing and everybody needs nut milk now. And, you know, but I, I think that people aren't, the consequences of some of those food fads on the environment is quite, yeah. I mean, we all talk about feedlots and we all know that we weigh too much meat and, you know, all of that all really has to change, but you're not making it better by some of the choices you're making. Uh, in terms of healthy or clean eating. Yeah. I, I, we're just so herd-like, aren't we? Like, we're, suddenly everybody eats avocados. Yeah, yeah and, 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 and the water in Paris. There is no water disaster. in Chile. Yeah, yeah. yeah. there's yeah. no water in Chile. And, 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 and I remember when avocado each other, was yeah. a really rare thing. Yeah. You'd have half of it with a yeah. bit of vinaigrette. And now yeah. every single person has to have avocado every day. We need to wait yeah. into yeah. one thing or another. Yeah. But you know the really crazy thing is I've just been home in Australia for a month. It's avocado season. They are the most delicious thing in the world because they're there, they're, they're in season. Yeah, yeah. They taste green and nutty yeah. and sweet and they're creamy. And the avocados we get here, they're yeah. kind of, they're not really in, like a proper avocado in season, you know. So, I mean, if you've ever eaten a blueberry in the summer in California, it yeah. doesn't taste like the blueberry you're no. getting in Sainsbury's, you know. So, um, yeah, and actually a lot of food that's really here close to home is so fresh fresh in season they're also incredibly good for you yeah. like for example we're full of um it might seem like a very dull season because it's really brassicas and a few root vegetables but they're all incredibly nutrient rich and full of iron mm. for you citrus is a winter fruit mm. how miraculous is that because it's full of vitamin c for the winter months mm. it's not a summer fruit it looks like a ray of sunshine yeah. but it's a gift yeah. uh for for the winter months yeah. you know and um I'm, I'm laughing inside because I heard Skye talking about her. Sometimes I just want a simple piece of rye bread with a beautiful ripe tomato and some good salt. I spent the entire summer eating ripe tomatoes with rye bread with a little but bit of salt. Summer, not because because it just sounded so gorgeous. Yeah. With the yeah. summer where the tomato yeah. grows and the, yeah. the tomato yeah. is good. I mean, any tomato that you get now is not... It's disgusting. Yeah. It mm. yeah. Moving on from that simple thing that you can do on foods, um, plastics. Back, I mean, we had a conversation earlier about the industry. You know, a lot of people over the last year have said, right, I want to try and get rid of plastics in my life. I've moved on to the shampoo bar for a while. It didn't work. Moved on to, you know, toothpaste in the jar. We've all, a lot of us have probably tried these alternatives. Some work, some don't. They're not going to, as you said, make the big. Because equally, if we switch from one plastic thing to another plastic thing, which might be made of cornstarch. We're also doing a huge environmental issue. So what can the consumer, in your view, the one that wants to be active, what can he or she do mm -hmm. when it comes to saying, I want to try and be part of this plastic 
Um, well, I think we have to champion the brands and the businesses that are trying to do, to do the it. right thing. Yeah. So, you, I mean, the, the growth in the refill stores, the zero waste stores, has been phenomenal yeah. in the UK. Um, and the benefit of that is it's cheaper as well. You buy what you need, not what you're sold. Yeah. Um, so I think any if we can support those smaller stores or even the big stores that are trialing things, you know, we're, we're not far from Oxford where Waitrose have done their big trial. We, we have a, a live lab in London at a Thornton Budgeons, which I kind of love. It's one of the affordable supermarkets. And they've been our lab for the last 12 months where we've been systematically taking plastic out of every single aisle that we possibly can. We're up to about 3,000 product lines now. Wow. And the big shift that they've just done is um, that they put in part of the store a, a zero packaging area. So you can get your grains and your pulses and all the things that we used to, but also we put in a milk station. So you can get organic milk where we, you just bring your glass bottles back mm -hmm. and it's cheaper than buying the Tetra Pak carton of milk um, and even water. So you can get still and sparkling, cleaner than any water you would buy on the shelf, water from there. And it's so interesting just to see if you give people the choice, then they're really happy to experiment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And even Asda last week announced that they are starting to do um, a refill section in their stores. And that's, they're doing a trial. I mean, it's, it's slow as anything. But gradually these things are happening because people know sometimes we don't need packaging at all. We've become addicted to this convenience mm. of packaging. And, and sometimes we can just live without it. So that's a shift that we can do as shoppers. But most of the time, whenever people say, what can I do? And yes, of course, you can remember your bags and, you know, you and never have a takeaway coffee cup and never try never to buy a plastic bottle and eliminate cling film from your life because that is the devil. But other than that, it's very limited what people can yeah. do, you know, at an individual yeah. level because we buy what we are sold, yeah. which is why I think the pressure has to go on industry. Uh, and whenever we, we talk to individuals, the thing I'm almost more interested in, like an audience like this, is as an individual, your heart is in the right place. You want to do the right thing and make the difference that you can. But what is almost more interesting, your power is probably where you work. Because how can you then ignite, inspire that business to change in some way, be it, be it in law or TV or anything? That's where we're going to make the shift. Because industry really will change the world. We just need to work internally and make it possible for them. Yeah, I, I think mean, it's also, um, you know, I mean, because I, I, when I first heard Sean talk, I literally went home and really had a breakdown. I was like, I was so distressed. By, and then I saw a plastic ocean. And um, actually, you know, I remember you saying, let's just take six items. Let's just, you know, because I was just like, plastic, plastic. Everywhere yeah. I went, I was just, the world is full of plastic. And, um, you know, actually plastic is, as you always say, it's an incredible material. And if you do have plastic at home, the best thing you can do is keep it in the system, yeah. can't you? So if you've got Tupperware, look after it, wash it, put mm -hmm. it back. Don't kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. But, you know, uh, Sean's really right. And, I mean, our biggest uh, challenge was cling film, and it would be definitely the thing that we use most. But um, you, you remember we did this. We, we, we decided to do all statistics so we could really work out exactly how much plastic we used. So we went back, cling film we used, and we, we'd used cling film so liberally it was insane. You know, you, you'd wrap um, napkins that weren't perfect and send them back to the cleaning company. You know, you can actually use it as a lid on a pot, and you can boil because it, it, it goes up to over 60 degrees. And We didn't do sous vide, which is the kind of very fashionable cooking that people mm. have done for a long time, which is basically backpacking and cooking in boiling water. We've, I've never done that. And... Um, but we went over every all the cling film we'd ordered in a year, and we worked out how much it was per roll. And then we broke it down to miles, and we worked out that we used, as a business, 800 miles of cling film. Wow. A uh, year, which is basically from here to the end of Scotland, the end of, yeah. Mm. And, uh, and then what we realized, so that's just us. That's just spring. Um, and... There are 15,000 food and beverage outlets in London. And if that's just us, can you imagine what the sum total of that was? And so we actually just went cold turkey on cling film. We just bought lids for everything, which yeah. sounds insane, but that's all we did. Well, we spent 1,200 pounds. Yeah. We bought all the lids for our pots. We bought all the lids for these little metal things called gastros that you use in kitchens. Um, we tried beeswrap. We tried cellulose. 
And actually, at the end of the day, I mean, beeswax is a really beautiful, it smells so great. Mm. It's a really wonderful thing to have in your house and works really well. It's not really good on an industrial scale mm. because mm. it's just not, um, it doesn't really cling. It's great to cover something and put in, pop it in the It's fridge. for home use, I think. It's for know, home use, it? yeah. And cellulose doesn't really cut it, actually. Yeah. You're better off not to do anything. And we've, we've been for, uh, it was, uh, I think it was February 2018, we've been single-use, cling uh, wow. film free for. And like, I wouldn't even, I couldn't even tell you what I'd need it for now. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Once you stop... Yeah, yeah, you don't yes. need it. Yeah. And that's the great thing about yeah. humans. We're incredibly adaptable. Yeah. Mm. Exactly. You know, if, if things just disappear from our lives, we will survive. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, c coming back to this, um, going, using our Tupperwares, going to the supermarket and, you know, filling them, the refill. I mean, I had this discussion with my, uh, my um, butcher sort of thing at my organic supermarket that he is not allowed to fill it. Uh, with, I think it was chicken that I'm not allowed to have in my Tupperware. And so we have this whole argument. He says, no, health and safety doesn't allow me. So we're now coming on to this Bonkers. conversation about health and safety. So we need to put pressure onto industry to change things, but we also need to put pressure on regulations and policies. And how do we as a consumer do that? That these stupid policies, which are really bonkers and mindless, and they're the biggest enemy of the environment, how do we get those changed? Yeah, that, that's going to be... A tricky task yeah but I think I hope sanity will will win prevail yeah um, and one of the things that we were talking about earlier that I found very interesting is you know as an organization that's trying to get supermarkets to, to dramatically reduce their use of plastic you look at the fresh produce aisle and think how much of that really needs it and everybody's heard the story about the cucumber um, and then I found it amazing that we have had two years of DEFRA particularly saying plastic is very important to minimise food waste. Mm. So this has been, been you know, the, the thing to push us back, to, to really um, reduce the pace of change. And at the end of last year, I suddenly saw this little announcement from DEFRA saying, saying DEFRA urges supermarkets to remove plastic from the fresh produce aisle to reduce food waste. They completely flipped mm. their position. But that's so true. Yeah. Because and it does reduce yeah, food waste yeah. because we're connected with our food then. And the, the madness of a best before day on a tomato. Yeah. I don't know what's happened to us. that we could, we've, You go down that fresh produce aisle, everything is just in its little plastic tomb. We take it home, we pop it in the fridge, we pull it out, we look at the best before date. We don't smell it, yeah. we don't feel it, we don't touch it, we chuck it in the bin. So plastic actually, I think, has been an enabler of food But it's also very frustrating because you can't, in most supermarkets, I think, you can't even buy one avocado. No. no. Isn't it buy one, I mean, like it's ripe and ready and they come in two in a packet. Like so many things come in these kind of pre-controlled weighed, mm. you know, you can't just buy, it's hard to buy one or two carrots sometimes, isn't it? They yeah, they come packets. in a big yeah. bag here. So yeah. very often you're buying much more than what you need. And actually, I think, um, I think it's, uh, we, we throw out, a quarter of our fridge or between a quarter and a yeah. third of our fridge well we always used to you know so we were actually buying way too much more than we needed mm. because it came yeah it came yeah. And we, yeah we've adopted in the uk we've adopted the u.s retail model yes so we have mm. very long supply yeah. chains and yeah. if you go to southern europe it's a completely different experience yeah, yeah, yeah. and you know if you if you think you go to france and you get up on a saturday morning think, let's go to the food market, market. Exactly. and it's this wonderful gustative multi-sensory experience mm. I don't know anybody who comes to the UK thinking, let's go to Tesco. Yeah. You know, it's just, so so we, we need to think, well, what's happened? How do we, yeah. how do we slide into this? Yeah. Yeah. It's true. It's true. I mean, um, I went there's this, to the Slow Food Fair in, in, in Turin and um, we were queuing up for lunch. And what do Italians do when they stand in the queue? They talk about cooking. Mm. So they were exchanging recipes as we were sort of standing in this queue for... And that in itself told such a story to me because here in England, you know, how would people start talking about how they cook whatever, their Sunday roasts? I mean, this conversation. And then the whole queue was involved in the conversation. And it's that culture around food and the appreciation mm. of food and the market of food that really sort of um, sits much deeper in other cultures, I think. Yeah. Um, anyway, I'm going to open, I think, the conversation up to, to, to the rest of the of the audience, of, of the guests here. So, and I don't know if anybody's got any questions they want to ask um, or even comment on something that they've experienced 
over the last couple of years with food waste plastics or any issues? I had a question. I live in, uh, in Vancouver and uh, what I've noticed, I've been back in the UK for a month now, and I've noticed that uh, in Vancouver we have farmers markets like throughout the winter as well and everything obviously is seasonal and there is no plastics or anything. You know, you come with your own cloth bags and whatnot and, you know, you stock up. Uh, and it's about the same price, maybe a little bit more expensive than the supermarkets, but overall it's there is a little bit of a parity. But over here I see, perhaps in the summer there are farmers markets, but I see fewer here. And anyway, so I arrived and off I went to Sainsbury's and I was shocked at how much plastic packaging there was. And then I got even more lazy and went to Ocado and everything, you know, got sent to me was, was completely packaged in, in plastic. So I wondered with the farmers markets, is it all about sort of going back to literally the roots and getting, you know, you go to somebody who has, you know, professionally or whatnot grown things and we buy from them like we used to when we were younger and we'd go to supermarkets and it would be much fresher because it would be from the surrounding area. Um, or are we, you know, destined to just shop at supermarkets now? I think that this is one with this one for Sky. The thing that you said earlier that I'm I'm never going to forget is the only question you need to ask is where did your food come from? Mm. Well, it's interesting what you said about we've adopted. Um, it's a it's a funny one. There are farmers markets here. I mean, we don't have the farmers markets in the same way that they do in America. It's an interesting. I I, I don't know about Canada, but America's a fascinating country because on one. It, it, it literally is a monoculture. Then on, on the other hand, you have some of the most beautiful organic farms in the world. And for example, if you go to Union Square in New York, the farmer's market there, it's a true farmer's market. And what I mean by that, and what we've done here, we, you will find farmer's markets here, but once you add cooked food vendors to farmer's markets, you're taking away the reason for the farmer's market and the reason that people come. So you're coming to buy cooked food, and it actually almost has destroyed the farmers' markets in this country. Right. So if you go to Union Square, it's only organic farms. There is no cooked food there. They also had this amazing thing that I saw last time where they had these compost bins. And I, I stood there literally for about half an hour. It was so fascinating. And I just watched people, New Yorkers, coming with their vegetable peelings and food waste and adding it to the compost which then they put in um, an anaerobic digester, and then they sell it back to you to use, um, to use as a fertilizer. Yeah. How amazing. So I think that's one of the really, really big problems. It's, it's really important if you, uh, if you have a food market, like Bar and Market, it's kind of like Disneyland now. You can get a grilled cheese sandwich and a kebab and a this, and, but you can't see the, the, the farmers, farm stands there anymore. Um, and so that is a real problem for us here. Uh, but in, to go um, add to that, I think, um, interestingly enough, the latest sort of um, policies coming out of the government now um, is for farmers to get more for, because they need to uh, phase out the subsidies that they're getting here from the EU. Yeah. So what they're doing is incentivizing in relation to the food that you grow and taking responsibility for the soil security. So mm. I think that will actually incentivize very interesting um, new development to farmers having that relationship with their produce again, which has also been lost here a lot mm. because of the farming um, mod um, model that we've had. Um, and you had a question. I think one of the problems with supermarkets is the cost of food. It can be so cheap in a way to mm -hmm. buy and there's, and there's so many offers. Whilst, you know, that's great in many levels for, you know, people to have access to all kinds of food. It means that people buy, you know, too much food or they don't know what they're buying. Um, and then there is the waste. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I lived in France for many years and, and shopped in markets in Paris, for example, where food was very expensive. I mean, going to the market, you buy a chicken for 20 pounds, but, you know, it's, it's yeah. a fully organic chicken and it's a proper meal and you're not going to waste it because it's expensive. Um, you know, and all your vegetables are, are very expensive. So you really work out what you need. You know, you think, right, is it going to be four carrots or eight carrots? Is it going to be... You know, you, you sort of you think about it much more, whereas the supermarkets in this country, I think they just encourage waste because, you know, you can go to Tesco's and, you know, and supermarkets like that where everything's just two for one, three for one. 
you know, people buy too much and they yeah. don't know how to cook it and then well, they throw well, it out. Well, food is too cheap. Yeah, too food cheap. is way I mean, too cheap. That's one of the problems, yeah. I think. And we don't have the true value of food anymore. And I'm really bad on statistics, but I think up until about the 1960s or 70s, we used to spend about a third of our income, yeah. might have been the 50s, on food. We now spend less than something like 7% yeah, of less our... Yeah, well less than 10%. Yeah, yeah. On, on food. So we... We have this, uh, we don't value food in the same no. way. And um, it is too cheap. And, in, and, 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 and for all the intentions, you know, that um, that kind of, uh, those monocultures and things began to, you know, grow, you know, to, you know, basically they're either, it's cattle feed, it's cattle feed or it's to preserve and prolong and cheapen food, you know, through corn syrups, corn starches, you know. And, um, and it has made food way too cheap. You know, and um, what, what the truth the, is, we eat too much and we pay too little for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And, and one of the one of the things we need to be careful of is we're in a lovely bubble here. Yeah. And and there is you know a vast um, percentage of of the UK population who have to feed a family mm. on fifty quid a week. And I think the problem is it's not just that food is too cheap; it's processed food yeah. is yeah. too cheap. Yeah. yeah. So it steers people to the wrong things. Yeah. And, and if we could switch that, I think that, that could make a really big difference because if you make processed food too cheap, then inevitably that's going to be the majority of what a family trying to live on a very um, a meagre budget, that's what they're going to buy. Yeah. But I mean, obesity, very much, I, I, I agree, a lot of it's an economic issue. Yeah. You course. know, and, uh, and, and a time I'm, issue. I mean, people have forgotten yeah. how to cook. A lot of, well, let's two, see, if you're a single mother work. and you've got yeah. a full-time job and let's say you've got three children, what are you going to buy? Of course you're going to buy processed food because you might be too exhausted to stand and cook in the evening. Mm. I mean, I get it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, so how do, we, how do we, and there's a lot of those people around. Mm -hmm. So we need to find a way of how to, addre to address that. Well, it, I think it's really, I mean, I think it is the fact that processed food is too cheap because you can... I mean, I, I do too, and I feel, sometimes I feel so middle class, you know, talking about organics and, you know, telling people that food is too cheap. And, but, um, and I do understand, you know, that, you know, uh, exactly families, there's very little money, uh, you know, wages have really not increased mm. in any true meaning since mm. the 1970s, you know, like everything's become more expensive. Mm. It's, you know, it's tough to live out there now. But I, I, I also feel that, we don't cook anymore, not not in the true sense. And but actually, you can cook yeah. incredibly cheaply from scratch. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's been it's been very interesting for me actually on the whole affordability thing. Is the majority of the supermarkets that we work with are people like Budgeons, Iceland Foods, Morrison's the Co-op. Yeah. You know, and I love the fact that it is the affordable supermarkets yeah. that are making great strides mm. in this. And working closely with the, the Walker family who own Iceland Foods, mm. who obviously they were the first to come out of the gate on plastic. Um, and then they had the whole palm oil thing last mm. year. Um, and the, the, in, the passion that they have for making good food affordable. And it was very interesting actually talking to, uh, to them about the whole thing of frozen. The frozen, we used to think that's, that's kind of, that's, that's the worst of food. Mm. But actually, if you look at frozen fish, a lot of frozen produce, it's the freshest, the freshest it can possibly second, be yeah. Yeah. because it's frozen very quickly. Yeah. And, and yet it's become something that we're a little bit ashamed. Oh, yeah, it's just a frozen something. So I think we've, we've got to rethink a oh, lot of different things. We could not run a farm without the freezer. Famine or gluts, you know, you, you never just get sort of 250 grams of blueberries every morning ready. You know, yeah. you get 80 kilos of blueberries already and you've got a seven-day window in which to pick them in yeah. you know we, we find it here on the farm or and you know we 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 run most of our soft fruit through the freezer it captures the flavor it never reaches the fridge i mean the only mm. thing that doesn't freeze well the strawberries don't freeze well but raspberries yeah. are you know and then you can pull them out and make raspberry ice cream and January and February. So there's a good tip to avoid food waste. You yeah. I mean, when you bought too much, like you said, you know, you freeze, you, yeah. you freeze, you freeze things yeah. and yeah. you make them into a, a soup. And then you, I mean, I do that and then you freeze it. Sorry, are there any more questions? That it's, there's Lucy, there's some. Yeah, um, I'm just wondering if, um, obviously, plastics is, is not great. And, 
But if we had more of a plant-based diet, mm -hmm. that would reduce uh, a lot of CO2 emissions around the world. Is that something that um, you know the three of you should be? I mean, there's uh, definitely more? CO2 emissions in yes. certain kinds of in agricultural farming. I think uh, it's just it's minimizing it. I think the, the fact is, as we was just saying, it's everybody's overeating on everything, and it's been this overconsumption of meat. I mean, I live in Germany at the moment, and we pay, I think, something outrageous, like um, with the the price of meat in Germany is the lowest in Europe. And so there's no value to everybody eats it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner because it's so cheap. So the point, again, is you need to raise that price. You need to stop from the sort of, you know, the intensive cattle farming, intense pork farming. All of that is really CO2 intense. So if we yeah. buy one chicken on a Sunday and we eat from it for the rest of the week, then it's fine, I think. And, and, and getting rid of and not eating meat at all and going on to just, as we just heard also before, you suddenly switch over to becoming vegan, that actually the environmental impact is, is huge. So the, what I always say to everybody is, if we start going back to the, a little bit of everything is the healthiest way of doing it, um, and a little bit of everything within season and within measure, rather than just going over the top and thinking when I have a dinner, I always have to serve meat. No, I don't. Michael Pollan, who I'm sure yeah, you've all heard this, yeah. he, he says, eat food, not too much, mainly plants. And I think that's pretty well says everything. You know, I mean, I, we, we, mm -hmm. in a way, I, I think we've forgotten and we, we, we feel that we need to be told what we, we should or couldn't eat. We've gotten so confused yeah. about it now. But it is, we, we know that we should eat, you know, um, we should eat a largely plant-based diet with great whole grains and a little bit of meat and fish, you yeah. know. And I, um, I mean, my dad, sorry, it's really boring, but he used to tell the story. He grew up in the war in Australia, and it was a big story. He used to tell us when we were growing up. Sunday, they'd have a leg of lamb for lunch, roast lamb, um, and there were six or seven in his family. They'd have one slice of lamb each for Sunday lunch or two slices of lamb. And he'd always tell the story that that leg of lamb would run for the family of six right through till Friday, whether it be on a sandwich, you know, a sandwich, or he'd make a shepherd's pie or... But you know, you you ate yeah. uh, you you ate very little meat. We have way too much yeah. meat in our diet, and um, but you know, I always feel very kind of um, you know, in terms of farming, uh, animals are an and especially biodynamic uh, yeah. farming. They're an incredibly important mm. farm, important part of the farm ecosystem um, in terms of fertilizer, yeah. and uh, so you know if. If we did, you know, you're talking about Italy and stuff before. I mean, all the reason things like Parma hams and, you know, like, um, you know, people used to use the hoofs in stews to make them glossy and yeah. rich and gelatinous. So, you know, you'd cure the, you'd cure the leg, salt the leg, and you'd make a cured meat, or you'd smoke them if you're in in Austria or in Alto, yeah. you know, around there. So we 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 didn't waste any of the animal at all, you know, when. My uh, Jane Scotter, who uh, is the farmer at Fernbarrow and is also the farmer, runs the farm here, it looks after the farm here. They, they have animals on their farm and they kill one animal a year and it, they, they break it. Farmer Tom Jones breaks it all down for them. And that is the one animal they eat for that year, you know. So, um, I think, yeah, and I think the relationship of animals with farming, sorry, I'm going to get it's just so important to the soil as well. So they've really proven that if you've got um, sheep in an apple orchard, it, the apples will grow better. Um, the Actually, the, the cattle grazing will get um, the production of wheat going. So if you rotate the cattle around fields, all of that. So we do depend on it. We just need to get back to the, the, the original. It's the feedlots, yeah. you know, and the cutting down the Amazon to put yeah. all the cattle. I mean, yeah. that's, that's the, yeah. the, the, the devil. Sorry, Lucy, there was a gentleman up there who had another question. You're absolutely right. Most street food is absolute garbage. You know, it shouldn't be touched on yeah. a, a lot of occasions. But you're absolutely right. I've never thought about that. So thank you for pointing that out. And, um, <laughs> but um, how do you deal with this elitism thing? You know, it strikes me that Greta Thunberg has got, it, got kids going. But how do you deal with the arguments when press are with you one day and then they're against you the next because of the price of, you know, people who can't afford to feed their families. You know, how do you deal with that elitism thing to keep it, will it help that the election's out of the way and we can focus on it now? Or? 
Well, that's a deep question, isn't yes. it? Yeah. Um, how do we deal with the elitism? I, I, I think the fact that, the, that everything is so connected, we have 10 years, we can see visible signs. Yeah, Sky has just come back from Australia. We know that the extreme weather patterns, we, it is now undeniable. There are, you know, there's 4% of all scientists now uh, are climate deniers. So even that has changed. Um, the fact that it, it, it impacts everybody. So there is something incredibly democratic about the climate crisis. We will all suffer. Mm. Some, of, some of the poorest people on the planet will That's suffer more. Yeah. Mm. yeah. You know, and the low-lying islands, obviously, will be the first to be really impacted. But I think the fact that we are all going to be affected um, and that it's so visible to us and so tangible, and you look at the, the fires in Australia, what's happening over there, hopefully that will be a catalyst for uh, a non-elitism of it. Well, what I what I hate is this whole thing. I, I remember when organic first came out, and it was really shocking to me that it was like the the disparity of pricing of organic products <coughs> and and non-organic was so extreme. And what was the message there? Let the poor people eat the pesticides, yeah. because the yeah. rich people can afford to eat differently. And one of the things that I, when I talk about affordability to have the right to buy plastic free, that's so important to me is it cannot be an affordability issue. Because then why should it be that only the rich people can take this toxic material away from their food and drink packaging and the poor people have to keep buying it? That's so wrong. But that was an industry thing again, because if you were a farmer who'd never used pesticides, you had to pay for the process to get certified mm. as organic. So therefore, you had to make your food premium mm. because the farming industry and the lobby was so strong that you, as somebody who'd been a small farmer and who'd, you know, you've been farming organically all your life, you actually got penalised for it. Mm. I think what's happening now is quite interesting. The bigger industry and the consumer good companies, like you know, Unilever thankfully led this because they had the fabulous CEO. So the bigger consumer good companies are realising that they will be losing their future consumers and markets, and they're the ones that are actually you know, catering to with affordable products. They're actually all making a change. It's not happened in fashion yet. So fast fashion, sadly, is, and we're not even going to touch on that. Mm -hmm. That really is a real problem. Um, but in consumer goods, you know, Unilever, Nestle, Coca-Cola, they're all, they've all realized that they need to start making the changes and they're happening. And that's, I think that's a sign for hope that that's for the mass market and for the affordable products. What is a concern? In some shops, they say, do you want a bag? And when they give you a bag, it's a paper bag. So what's going to happen to our trees? Yeah. If we go that way. Yeah. Should I answer that? It's just basically <laughs> I can single, all the time. It's just the single use thing. It is, it is the of. single use thing. Yeah. And uh, and uh, you know we had um, a lot of a lot of media activity actually last week when the Green Alliance came out and um, I I had to do a, a bit of radio stuff on it because I was constantly being asked. The Green Alliance came out with a report that mm. said if you know, some of the alternatives to plastic are actually more damaging to the environment. Um, one of the things that you have to always do on those reports is scratch a little bit deeper on who's behind that report, who actually funded that report. It, yeah. yeah. Interestingly, it was BP and Shell. <laughs> so you, you always have to think, who does it behove, who does it benefit to create more distrust and confusion amidst the shopper right now. The reality with the paper industry is we are not chopping trees down to make paper bags. The, the paper industry is actually um, uses the waste product of the timber industry. So when you take a tree, the top third is useless for timber. And so that is used for the paper industry and the, and the bottom two thirds go to the timber industry. Um, and so the, this whole myth that we're cutting down trees to make more paper bags, if you are using proper FSC managed forestry, then that absolutely isn't happening. But this whole thing of we can just use another resource and we can use it once and throw it away, of course has to stop. That whole thing of take, make, use once, waste. Well, that, that's, there is nothing circular in that economy. Mm. Um, but paper will be a massive part of our future. And one of the good reasons for, uh, for that is, of course, trees are a carbon sink. Mm. So the world needs more trees. Mm. Tree, you know, and through their whole growing phase, they would be taking carbon out of the environment. 
Um, and then we could use them. And the other good bit of news with the paper industry is there is an incredible recycling infrastructure already in place. It has a value like glass and metal. Whereas plastic, there is no value. Plastic is only ever downcycled. In the UK, we recycle 9% of plastic. In the US, 4.4% and it's going down because there is no value to it. So at least paper has an infrastructure. So if somebody gives you a paper bag, then it's better that you took your own bag in the first place, but it's better than taking that plastic bag. And the whole thing of you know, the Daily Mail campaign of, isn't it incredible, end of last year, look at the dramatic reduction in the amount of bags that we're using in the UK. Huge amount of backslapping going on. And the reality is we use more plastic now than we have ever used in making bags for life. So apparently, on average, every UK household has 56 bags for life. And the lo for life doesn't mean you have to use it five times. It means 500 years. So Henry VIII, the bag for life he bought, our queen would still be using. <laughs> so if, no, that's the bonkersness of the, of the short-termism that we have when we look up at things like life cycle analysis. But you know, when I, um, I remember when the, um, you know, the first, you know, 5p bags and things started to come out and actually I have to be honest I was like because I didn't really look at the plastic thing I was like oh great that's that's really good they're they're dealing with the plastic problem but actually I mean that plastic bag is a tiny part of I mean because there's 4,000 things in plastic that you put in the bag yeah 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 isn't that like you know sometimes you can count 20 30 40 mm. bits of plastic that you're putting in that bag so it was only ever the tiniest part of the problem anyway. It wasn't dealing with anything, was it? Yeah, it, it's become a big symbol. Yeah, it has, it, but like it's a big straw. symbol. Yeah, it's, it's like a big a symbol yeah, for a reason. Because it gets floated away and it ends in the ocean yes. and we see a lot of the plastic And it's unrecyclable yeah. in any way. Yeah. And we still use over 4 billion in yeah. the UK mm, every single yeah. year. Yeah. Yeah. So There was another question back. No, f uh, further back. Lucy, she was first. I'm sorry. No more. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> we haven't forgotten you. Um, I was just going to say that uh, you mentioned about fashions yes. and then rationing. And I remember being a child taken down the garden by my grandfather. And it was just after the, the war. And um, everybody had a garden where they had vegetables and they had their carrots and their potatoes and their uh, fruit trees at the end of the garden and their compost heap. And I was shown all of that as a child. And it just struck me as you were all speaking that perhaps if we could get children to think a little bit more along the, you know, a garden is for produce. And also um, anybody that didn't have a very big garden used to have an allotment. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, and that all seems to have been forgotten. Whereas in fact, fashions go round in circles and it just struck me as you were speaking about that. that it's interesting that you mentioned that because encourage I'm children to really get on board and learn. Well, know. they did it here this week with school children. But it's interesting that you mentioned that because um, I had a meeting yesterday. Um, I'm on the board of a trust in, in Bedfordshire, and we're doing a new development for housing. Um, and one of the key policies that's coming out of the councils now, because I mentioned it, I said allotments. You know, do we need to make sure that in this planning process we have allotments for vegetable gardens? And actually the councils are coming out with it that you're going to have to have a percentage now when you are building new houses. Um, you have to have a percentage for communal allotments again. So not allotments for people to, to work on them alone, but a communal one, which I think is even nicer because yeah. a lot of people don't even know how to where to start when they would grow their garden. So when you do a communal one, you can actually learn from each other. So the, the positive news there being, I heard yesterday, that is actually the new policies coming for new build is that this has always got to be included as a certain percentage. So yes, definitely. And then there was another question back there. Hi there, hi. Uh, my question's for Sean, really, because certainly looking around the room, there are a lot of us ladies here, and it is very difficult to buy cosmetics. Uh, of any kind, really, other than the shampoo that I've also tried, the soap shampoo, yeah. um, that is not in plastic. And who are the market leaders now in, you know, in refillables or glass bottles? Or who, who do we look to for that? Or what magazine to find the best produce and products? 
Yeah, it's, a, it's a great question. And I think the beauty industry, the personal care industry, they, they're, they're quaking in their boots right now because there's been so much focus on the kitchen and food and drink, you know, is a massive user of, of plastic. And they know that their time is coming. Um, but there are very few brands that actually do refill right now. Um, and Lush, I don't know if you know Lush. I mean, I don't know about you, but Lush, it's not a brand that's ever really spoken to me. And I walk no. past it on the high street and I think, oh my God, yeah. the smell of it, everything about it. But then I did a talk with one of the guys from Lush and I flipped and fell in love with that brand. I couldn't believe what they were doing. I, I had no idea they were so big. I mean, yeah. they're in something like 43 countries. Um, they're, you know, a billion, a billion pound turnover business. They are really massive. But the way that they do everything. So he said to me, what we're trying to do um, is we're we are going to everything in the future will be about concentrates. So the future of personal care and shampoos and beauty and everything will be about concentrates. Because right now we ship 99% water. So that the size of that plastic bottle, it doesn't need to be that big anyway. You could have one bottle, be it glass, aluminium, whatever. You pop in a concentrate and you add the water. Because from a carbon footprint perspective and everything else, why are we shipping water around the planet when we've all got it in the tap? So that would be a massive, uh, a massive shift. And they are the pioneers of that at Lush. So with their shampoo bars and they're doing solid moisturizers and lots of things. And he said to me, yeah, one of the things that we're trying to do is I want to take the water out of mineral water. I thought, well, that's, what does that even mean? He said, well, mineral water, the only thing is the minerals. So if you could add the minerals to any other water, then actually you've got mineral water wherever you want it to be. And that kind of radical thinking from mm. a personal care company, I think is really amazing. Mm. I mean, they, they send their stuff by sailboat. Who does that? <laughs> you know, they, they re, they've replanted um, the cork, the indigenous cork um, business back into Portugal, and they're making jars out of cork. So much as maybe the smell of it isn't up my street, uh, it made me fall in love with the mission of that brand. And, and they, have, uh, they have more fans than I had any idea. So they really are the people that will replace Body Shop. And, and they are now very global. And they've got an incredible audience behind them of big fans. Where did they start? They're in, in Pool. Dorset. Yeah, they're in yeah. Pool in Dorset. Yeah. So they were connected yeah. to the Body yeah. Shop in the very early they days. Were, yeah. um, and, but it's privately owned. And but, because of that, they could do what they want. Neil's Yard is doing quite a lot of really interesting things. So Neil's Yard, you can take your jars back. They do have, they've started refill at some of their shops and a lot, most of it is in glass. Yeah. So if you're looking for something brand. and yeah. their smells are delicious, they've been a UK brand forever. Yeah. So if you're looking for products that are not quite lush, you I You can't do any of the lids though, can you? What, what's the lid situation? It, it's still tricky. Because yeah. even if you've got a metal lid, you've probably got a plastic mm. liner. Yeah. yeah. Health and safety. Health and safety, mm. there we go. That was an episode of the Assembly at Heckfield Place podcast. You can find out more about the Assembly by visiting the Heckfield Place website and you can join the conversation on social media at Heckfield Place on Twitter and Heckfield underscore place on Instagram and by searching for the hashtag Heckfield Place. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.